0: Chapter 4, Part 1 of Across the Reef, The Marine Assault of Tarawa by Joseph H. Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. D-Day at Basio, 20 November, 1943. The crowded transports of Task Force 53 arrived off Tarawa Atoll shortly after midnight on D-Day. Debarkation began at 0320. The captain of the Zealand APA-3, played the Marines' hymn over the public address system, and the sailors cheered as the 2nd Battalion 2nd Marines crawled over the side and down the cargo nets. At this point, things started to go wrong. Admiral Hill discovered that the transports were in the wrong anchorage, masking some of the fire support ships, and directed them to shift immediately to the correct site. The landing craft bobbed along in the wake of the ships. Some Marines had been halfway down the cargo nets when the ships abruptly weighed anchor. Matching the exact LVTs with their assigned assault teams in the darkness became haphazard. Choppy Seas made cross-deck transfers between the small craft dangerous. Few tactical plans survived the opening rounds of execution, particularly in amphibious operations. The plan for D-Day at Basho established H-hour for the assault waves at 0830. Strike aircraft from the fast carriers would initiate the action with a half-hour bombing raid at 0545. Then the fire support ships would bombard the island from close range for the ensuing 130 minutes. The planes would return for a final strafing run at H-5, then shift to inland targets as the Marines stormed ashore. None of this went according to plan. The Japanese initiated the battle. Alerted by the pre-dawn activities offshore, the garrison opened fire on the task force with their big naval guns at 0507. The main batteries of the battleships Colorado, BB-45, and Maryland commenced counter-battery fire almost immediately. Several 16-inch shells found their mark. A huge fireball signaled destruction of an ammunition bunker for one of the Japanese gun positions. Other fire support ships joined in. At 0542, Hill ordered cease fire, expecting the air attack to commence momentarily. There was a long silence. The Carrier Air Group had changed its plans, postponing the strike by 30 minutes. Inexplicably, that unilateral modification was never transmitted to Admiral Hill, the amphibious task force commander. Hill's problems were further compounded by the sudden loss of communications on his flagship Maryland with the first crashing salvo of the ship's main battery. The Japanese coastal defense guns were damaged but still dangerous. The American mix-up provided the defenders a grace period of 25 minutes to recover and adjust. Frustrated at every turn, Hill ordered his ships to resume firing at 0605. Suddenly, at 0610, the aircraft appeared, bombing and strafing the island for the next few minutes. Amid all this, the sun rose, red and ominous through the thick smoke. The battleships, cruisers, and destroyers of Task Force 53 began a saturation bombardment of Basho for the next several hours. The awesome shock and sounds of the shelling were experienced avidly by the Marines. Staff Sergeant Norman Hatch, a combat photographer, thought to himself, We just really didn't see how we could do anything but go in there and bury the people. This wasn't going to be a fight. Time correspondent Robert Sherrod thought, Surely, no mortal men could live through such destroying power. Any Japs on the island would all be dead by now. Sherrod's thoughts were rudely interrupted by a geyser of water 50 yards astern of the ship. The Japanese had resumed fire and their targets were the vulnerable transports. The troop ships hastily got under way for the second time that morning. For Admiral Hill and General Julian Smith on board Maryland, the best source of information throughout the long day would prove to be the vought sikorsky type os2u kingfisher observation aircraft launched by the battleships at zero six forty eight hill inquired of the pilot of one float plane is reef covered with water the answer was a cryptic negative at that same time the lvt's of wave one with seven hundred infantrymen embarked left the assembly area and headed for the line of departure The crews and embarked troops in the LVTs had already had a long morning, complete with hair-raising cross-deck transfers in the choppy sea and the unwelcome thrill of 8-inch shells landing in their proximity. Now they were commencing an extremely long run to the beach, a distance of nearly 10 miles. The craft started on time but quickly fell behind schedule. The LVT-1s of the first wave failed to maintain the planned 4.5-knot speed of advance due to a strong westerly current decreased buoyancy from the weight of the improvised armor plating and their overaged power plants there was a psychological factor at work as well red mike etson had criticized the lvt crews for landing 5 minutes early during the rehearsal at afate saying early arrival inexcusable late arrival preferable admiral hill and general smith soon realized that the three struggling columns of lvts would never make the beach by 0830 HRO was postponed twice, to 0845, then to 0900. Here again, not all hands received this word. The destroyers Ringgold, DD-500, and Dashiel DD-659, entered the lagoon in the wake of two minesweepers to provide close-in fire support. Once in the lagoon, the minesweeper Pursuit, AM-108, became the primary control ship, taking position directly on the line of departure. Pursuit turned her searchlight seaward to provide the LVTs with a beacon through the thick dust and smoke. Finally, at 0824, the first wave of LVTs crossed the line, still 6,000 yards away from the target beaches. A minute later, the second group of carrier aircraft roared over Batio, right on time for the original H-hour, but totally unaware of the new times. This was another blunder. Admiral Kelly Turner had specifically provided all players in Operation Galvanic with this admonition. Times of strafing beaches with reference to H-hour are approximate. The distance of the boats from the beach is the governing factor. Admiral Hill had to call them off. The planes remained on station, but with depleted fuel and ammunition levels available. The LVT struggled shoreward in three long waves, each separated by a 300-yard interval. The 42 LVT-1s of Wave 1, followed by 24 LVT-2s of Wave 2, and 21 LVT-2s of Wave 3. Behind the track vehicles came Waves 4 and 5 of LCVPs. Each of the assault battalion commanders were in Wave 4. Further astern, the Ashland ballasted down and launched 14 LCMs, each carrying a Sherman Medium tank. Four other LCMs appeared carrying light tanks. 37 millimeter guns. Shortly before 0800, Colonel Shoup and elements of his tactical command post debarked into LCVPs from Biddle, APA-8, and headed for the line of departure. Close by Shoup stood an enterprising sergeant, energetically shielding his bulky radio from the salt spray. Of the myriad of communications blackouts and failures on D-Day, Shoup's radio would remain functional longer and serve him better than the radios of any other commander, American or Japanese, on the island. Admiral Hill ordered a ceasefire at 0854, even though the waves were still 4,000 yards offshore. General Smith and Red Mike Etzen objected strenuously, but Hill considered the huge pillars of smoke unsafe for overhead fire support of the assault waves. The great noise abruptly ceased. The LVTs making their final approach soon began to receive long-range machine gun fire and artillery air bursts. The latter could have been fatal to the troops crowded into open-topped LVTs, but the Japanese had overloaded the projectiles with high explosives. Instead of steel shell fragments, the Marines were doused with hot sand. It was the last tactical mistake the Japanese would make that day. The previously aborted airstrike returned at 0855 for five minutes of noisy but ineffective strafing along the beaches, the pilots again heeding their wristwatches instead of the progress of the lead LVTs. Two other events occurred at this time. A pair of naval landing boats darted towards the end of the long pier at the reef's edge, outcharged 1st Lieutenant Hawkins with his scout sniper platoon and a squad of combat engineers. These shock troops made quick work of Japanese machine gun emplacements along the pier with explosives and flamethrowers. Meanwhile, the LVTs of Wave 1 struck the reef and crawled effortlessly over it, commencing their final run to the beach. These parts of Shoup's landing plan worked to perfection. But the preliminary bombardment, as awesome and unprecedented as it had been, had failed significantly to soften the defenses. Very little ship's fire had been directed against the landing beaches themselves, where Admiral Shibasaki vowed to defeat the assault units at the water's edge. The well-protected defenders simply shook off the sand and manned their guns. Worse, the near-total curtailment of naval gunfire for the final 25 minutes of the assault run was a fateful lapse. In effect, the Americans gave their opponents time to shift forces from the southern and western beaches to reinforce northern positions. The defenders were groggy from the pounding and stunned at the sight of LVTs crossing the barrier reef, but Shibasaki's killing zone was still largely intact. The assault waves were greeted by a steadily increasing volume of combined arms fire. For wave one, the final 200 yards to the beach were the roughest, especially for those LVTs approaching red beaches one and two. The vehicles were hammered by well-aimed fire from heavy and light machine guns, and 40 millimeter anti-boat guns. The Marines fired back, expending 10,000 rounds from the 50 caliber machine guns mounted forward on each LVT-1. But the exposed gunners were easy targets, and dozens were cut down. Major Drews, the LVT battalion commander who had worked so hard with Shoop to make this assault possible, took over one machine gun from a fallen crewman and was immediately killed by a bullet through the brain. Captain Fenlon A. Durand, one of Drew's company commanders, saw a Japanese officer standing defiantly on the seawall waving a pistol, just daring us to come ashore. On they came. Initial touchdown times were staggered. 0910 on Red Beach 1, 0917 on Red Beach 3, 0922 on Red Beach 2. The first LVT ashore was vehicle number 4-9, nicknamed My Dolores, driven by PFC Edward J. Moore. My Dolores was the right guide vehicle on Wave 1 on Red Beach 1, hitting the beach squarely on the bird's beak. Moore tried his best to drive his LVT over the 5-foot seawall, but the vehicle stalled in a near-vertical position while nearby machine guns riddled the cab. Moore reached for his rifle only to find it shot in half. One of the embarked troops was 19-year-old Private First Class Gilbert Ferguson, who recalled what happened next on board the LVT. The sergeant stood up and yelled, Everybody out! At that very instant, machine gun bullets appeared to rip his head off. Ferguson, Moore, and others escaped from the vehicle and dispatched two machine gun positions only yards away. All became casualties in short order. Very few of the LVTs could negotiate the seawall. Stalled on the beach, the vehicles were vulnerable to pre-registered mortar and howitzer fire, as well as hand grenades tossed into the open troop compartments by Japanese troops on the other side of the barrier. The crew chief of one vehicle, Corporal John Spillane, had been a baseball prospect with the St. Louis Cardinals organization before the war. Spillane caught two Japanese grenades barehanded in midair, tossing them back over the wall. A third grenade exploded in his hand, grievously wounding him. The second and third waves of LVT-2s, protected only by three-eighths-inch plate hurriedly installed in Samoa, suffered even more intense fire. Several were destroyed spectacularly by large-caliber anti-boat guns. Private First Class Newman M. Baird, a machine gunner aboard one embattled vehicle, recounted his ordeal. We were 100 yards in now, and the enemy fire was awful damn intense and getting worse. They were knocking LVTs out left and right. A tractor'd get hit, stop, and burst into flames, with men jumping out like torches. Baird's own vehicle was then hit by a shell, killing the crew and many of the troops. I grabbed my carbine in an ammunition box and stepped over a couple of fellas lying there, and put my hand on the side so as to roll over into the water. I didn't want to put my head up. The bullets were pouring at us like a sheet of rain. On balance, the LVTs performed their assault mission fully within Julian Smith's expectations. Only eight of the 87 vehicles in the first three waves were lost in the assault, although 15 more were so riddled with holes that they sank upon reaching deep water while seeking to shuttle more troops ashore. Within a span of 10 minutes, the LVTs landed more than 1,500 Marines on Basio's north shore, a great start to the operation. The critical problem lay in sustaining the momentum of the assault. Major Holland's dire predictions about the neap tide had proven accurate. No landing craft would cross the reef throughout D-Day. Shoup hoped enough LVTs would survive to permit wholesale transfer line operations with the boats along the edge of the reef. It rarely worked. The LVT suffered increasing casualties. Many vehicles, afloat for five hours already, simply ran out of gas. Others had to be used immediately for emergency evacuation of wounded Marines. Communications, never good, deteriorated as more and more radio sets suffered water damage or enemy fire. The surviving LVTs continued to serve, but after about 10 1, hundred on D-Day, most troops had no other option but to wade ashore from the reef, covering distances from 500 to 1,000 yards under well-aimed fire. Marines of Major Shettles LT-32 were particularly hard hit on Red Beach 1. Company K suffered heavy casualties from the re-entrant strongpoint on the left. Company I made progress over the seawall along the Bird's Beak, but paid a high price, including the loss of the company commander, Captain William E. Tatum killed before he could even debark from his LVT. Both units lost half their men in the first two hours. Major Michael P. Mike Ryan's Company L, forced to wait ashore when their boats grounded on the reef, sustained 35% casualties. Ryan recalled the murderous enfilading fire and confusion. Suddenly, one lone trooper was spotted through the fire and smoke scrambling over a parapet on the beach to the right marking a new landing point. As Ryan finally reached the beach, he looked back over his shoulder. All I could see was heads with rifles held over them, as his waiting men tried to make as small a target as possible. Ryan began assembling the stragglers of various waves in a relatively sheltered area along Green Beach. Major Shettle remained in his boat with the remnants of his fourth wave, convinced that his landing team had been shattered beyond relief no one had contact with ryan the fragmented reports shuttle received from the survivors of the two other assault companies were disheartening seventeen of his thirty-seven officers were casualties in the center landing team two two was also hard hit coming ashore over red beach two the japanese strong point and the reentrant between the two beaches played havoc among troops trying to scramble over the sides of their beached or stalled lvts Five of Company E's six officers were killed. Company F suffered 50% casualties getting ashore and swarming over the seawall to seize a precarious foothold. Company G could barely cling to a crowded stretch of beach along the seawall in the middle. Two infantry platoons and two machine gun platoons were driven away from the objective beach and forced to land on Red Beach 1, most joining Ryan's orphans. When Lieutenant Colonel Amy's boat rammed to a sudden halt against the reef, he hailed two passing LVTs for a transfer. Amy's LVT then became hung up on a barbed wire obstacle several hundred yards off Red Beach 2. The battalion commander drew his pistol and exhorted his men to follow him into the water. Closer to the beach, Amy turned to encourage his staff. Come on, those bastards can't beat us. A burst of machine gun fire hit him in the throat, killing him instantly. His executive officer, Major Howard Rice, was in another LVT, which was forced to land far to the west behind Major Ryan. The senior officer present with 2 was Lieutenant Colonel Walter Jordan, one of several observers from the 4th Marine Division and one of only a handful of survivors from Amy's LVT. Jordan did what any Marine would do under the circumstances. He assumed command and tried to rebuild the disjointed pieces of the landing team into a cohesive fighting force. The task was enormous. The only assault unit to get ashore without significant casualties was Major Jim Crow's lt 28 on Red Beach 3 to the left of the pier. Many historians have attributed this good fortune to the continued direct fire support-28 received throughout its run to the beach from the destroyers Ringgold and Dashiell in the lagoon. The two ships indeed provided outstanding fire support to the landing force, but their logbooks indicate both ships honored Admiral Hill's 0855 ceasefire. Thereafter, neither ship fired in support of LT-28 until at least 0925. Doubtlessly, the preliminary fire from such short range served to keep the Japanese defenders on the eastern end of the island buttoned up long after the ceasefire. As a result, Crow's team suffered only 25 casualties in the first three LVT waves. Company E made a significant penetration crossing the barricade in the near taxiway, but five of its six officers were shot down in the first 10 minutes ashore. Crow's LT-28 was up against some of the most sophisticated defensive positions on the island. Three fortifications to their left, eastern flank, would effectively keep these Marines boxed in for the next 48 hours. Major Jim Crow, former enlisted man, marine gunner, distinguished rifleman, star football player, was a tower of strength throughout the battle. His trademark red mustache bristling, a combat shotgun cradled in his arm, he exuded confidence and professionalism, qualities sorely needed on Batio that long day. Crow ordered the coxswain of his LCVP, put this goddamn boat in, the boat hit the reef at high speed, sending the Marines sprawling. Quickly recovering, Crow ordered his men over the sides, then led them through several hundred yards of shallow water, reaching the shore intact only four minutes behind his last wave of LVTs. Accompanying Crow during this hazardous effort was Staff Sergeant Hatch, the combat photographer. Hatch remembers being inspired by Crow, clenching a cigar in his teeth and standing upright, growling at his men, Look, the sons of bitches can't hit me. Why do you think they can hit you? Get moving! Go! Red Beach 3 was in capable hands. The situation on Basho by 0945 on D-Day was thus. Crow, well established on the left with modest penetration to the airfield, a distinct gap between LT-28 and the survivors of LT-22 in small clusters along Red Beach 2 under the tentative command of Jordan, a dangerous gap due to the Japanese fortifications at the re between beaches 2 and 1, with a few members of 3-2 on the left flank, and the growing collection of odds and ends under Ryan past the Bird's Beak on Green Beach. Major Shettle still afloat, hovering behind the reef. Colonel Shoup likewise in an LCVP, but beginning his move towards the beach. Residual members of the boated waves of the assault team still wading ashore under increasing enemy fire, the tanks being forced to unload from their LCMs at the reef's edge, trying to organize recon teams to lead them ashore. Communications were ragged. The bulky TBX radios of Shoop, Crow, and Shuttle were still operational. Otherwise, there was either dead silence or complete havoc on the command nets. No one on the flagship knew of Ryan's relative success on the western end or of Amy's death and Jordan's assumption of command. Several echelons heard this ominous early report from an unknown source. Have landed. Unusually heavy opposition. Casualties 70%. Can't hold. Shoup ordered Kyle's LT-12, the regimental reserve, to land on Red Beach 2 and work west. This would take time. Kyle's men were awaiting orders at the line of departure, but all were embarked in boats. Shoup and others managed to assemble enough LVTs to transport Kyle's companies A and B, but the 3rd Infantry Company and the Weapons Company would have to wait ashore. The ensuing assault was chaotic. Many of the LVTs were destroyed en route by anti-boat guns, which increasingly had the range down pat. At least five vehicles were driven away by the intense fire and landed west at Ryan's position, adding another 113 troops to Green Beach. What was left of Companies A and B stormed ashore and penetrated several hundred feet, expanding the perimeter. Other troops sought refuge along the pier or tried to commandeer a passing LVT. Kyle got ashore in this fashion, but many of his troops did not complete the landing until the following morning. The experience of Lieutenant George D. Lillibridge of Company A, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, was typical. His LVT driver and gunners were shot down by machine gun fire. The surviving crewmen got the stranded vehicle started again, but only in reverse. The stricken vehicle then backed wildly through the entire impact zone before breaking down again. Lillabridge and his men did not get ashore until sunset. The Transport Zeeland, which had launched its Marines with such fanfare only a few hours earlier, received its first clear signal that things were going wrong on the beach, when a derelict lvt chugged close astern with no one at the controls the ship dispatched a boat to retrieve the vehicle the sailors discovered three dead men aboard the lvt two marines and a navy doctor the bodies were brought on board then buried with full honors at sea the first of hundreds who would be consigned to the deep as a result of the maelstrom on Basio. Communications on board Maryland were gradually restored to working order in the hours following the battleship's early morning duel with Basio's Coast Defense Batteries. On board the flagship, General Julian Smith tried to make sense out of the intermittent and frequently conflicting messages coming in over the command net. At 10.18, he ordered Colonel Hall to chop Major Robert H. Rudd's LT-38 to Shoop's CT-2, Smith further directed Hall to begin boating his Regimental Command Group and LT-18, Major Lawrence C. Hayes, Jr., the Division Reserve. At 10.36, Smith reported to five amphibious corps, Successful landing on beaches Red 2 and 3, hold on Red 1, am committing one LT from Division Reserve, still encountering strong resistance throughout. Colonel Shoup, at this time, was in the middle of a long odyssey trying to get ashore. He paused briefly for this memorable exchange of radio messages with Major Shuttle: 0959. Shuttle to Shoup, receiving heavy fire all along the beach, unable to land all, issue in doubt. Ten o seven, Shuttle to Shoup, boats held up on the reef of right flank red one, troops receiving heavy fire in water. Ten twelve. Shoop to shuttle, land beach red two and work west. Ten eighteen shuttle to shoop. We have nothing left to land. End of chapter four, part one. Read by Aaron Bennett.